This is They Create Worlds, episode 155, Nintendo Playing With Toys. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. First, we started off with Cement. Then we took a break and played cards. Then we enjoyed some wonderful controversy while eating rice. Instant rice. Definitely. Instant rice. We can now ascend to the wonderful land of toys, games, and entertainment, knowing that nothing bad will happen to Nintendo ever again. Sure... Except at the very end of this episode. Spoiler alert. Oh, dear. But yes, we are continuing our overarching look at Nintendo in part three of this gigantic history of the company. We're not going to be covering the entire history of the company. We will be ending it today. Otherwise, it would turn into about a 20-part series. And if I'm saying 20 now, it probably means at least 30 when we actually get me to stop talking. But we are going to wrap up today by bringing us through the final era of the company before they got into coin-op games and then subsequently into video games and started more resembling the Nintendo that we think of as Nintendo today. As Jeff more than hinted at, this final period of the company is dominated by toys. Not exclusively, but primarily by toys and board games. Just to kind of briefly remind us where we left off, by the beginning of the 1960s, Nintendo was actually in a bit of trouble because the card sales were just suddenly falling off completely. This had sustained them since the Disney cards that they had done in 1959, but then it just dried up. People were getting tired of it, I guess. People were on to new things. And this was coming at the exact moment when uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi, the president of the company, had grand ambitions to expand the company, some of which we talked about last time, like the instant rice and the other food products. They had just gone public in 1962. They were now Nintendo Company Limited, no longer identified in their company name as a playing card company. Revenues were going down, and the way forward was uncertain. Yamauchi, at this point, makes two very, very important decisions. First of all, he does decide that a logical extension for the company is to get into games. Not thinking so much toys more generally quite yet, but games, because he's got the cards. Obviously, you play games with cards. The process of making cards and making board games is in a lot of ways similar in the sense that they're both games that have a lot of printed objects. So that's something that the factories can probably be adapted to do fairly easily. He's got the distribution network already for cards. He's been targeting the cards, remember, at children ever since the Disney cards in 1959. It's targeted at children as much as anybody. So he's got that in already with the younger demographic, with the toy stores, with those kinds of retail establishments. 
So at the same time that he's experimenting with the instant rice, doing the taxi company on the side, and probably not doing a love hotel, despite what the sources will tell you, he also sees games as a logical move. The other important decision he makes is he realizes that he needs a new breed of employee at Nintendo. Nintendo, throughout its history, has been a card manufacturer. First, handmade cards with artisans. More recently, it's been more of an assembly line operation. But the workers in that area have just been drones, just doing the card work. The company has remained fairly small, and there really isn't a lot of talent, design talent, or management talent. Yamauchi rules the company with an iron fist. His way goes, especially after he successfully broke the strike in the 50s that we talked about. That continues throughout the history of the company for the entire time that he's in charge of it, even going into the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. That's still basically the way it is. But at this time, it's even more true because there's really no one there that can stand up to him, that can interact with him, and who has the skill and ambition to carry out his directives and carry out his ideas. He realizes he needs to bring those kind of people into the company. He starts really looking to hire young, bright university graduates into the company. This is actually very challenging for him to do for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're still not that far removed from World War II, from the end of World War II. We're still talking less than 20 years from the end of World War II. Didn't the whole reconstruction effort and occupation thing go up to 5760s? Exactly. That is exactly right. So it's only just at this period of time in the early 60s that you're starting to get a decent pool of college graduates again, quite frankly, because everyone was just having to work to support themselves to survive. This educated university class is very much coming back in Japan. It's not like it ever went away entirely. At this point, it's still relatively small, all things considered. Then the other problem is, is that at this point, Nintendo, even though they've gone public, Nintendo is still a small company. It is still a card-playing company. It is still in Kyoto, which is not Tokyo, not Osaka, not one of the bigger, more industrial, more active cities. Luring these kind of graduates to come work for Nintendo is not so easy because university students have so many better prospects. It's a bit of a struggle, but he does manage to bring some talent in. And there are really two especially key people that are hired in this period right here at the beginning of, of the 1960s, kind of between 1963 and 1965. The first of these is a recent law school graduate by the name of Hiroshi Imanishi. Imanishi basically, for the entire rest of the time that Yamauchi is at the company, they retire together. When Yamauchi steps down in 2002, so does Imanishi. For the entire rest of the time that Yamauchi runs the company, Imanishi is his number one right-hand man. He holds a variety of titles throughout the years. Sometimes he's in finance, sometimes he's in administration, sometimes he's in licensing and planning. He eventually takes kind of the catch-all title of being in charge of the general affairs department, which is kind of a way of lumping together all of these kind of sides of the company that just keep things going, like finance, administration, etc. 
what he really is, is the person who carries out Yamauchi's will. Because Yamauchi is not really much of a get-in-the-trenches kind of leader. He is very autocratic. He's very sure of himself. Detractors would call him arrogant. Supporters would just call him very confident, (laughs) very strong. He knows what he wants. It's hard for him to kind of convey that in a way that doesn't devolve into just pontificating and lecturing. He doesn't know how to properly motivate the troops, so to speak. He can't walk through the assembly line and convey that air of, hey, you're doing good. Let's have this thing to improve this person's work-life balance. Let's have (laughs) this kind of thing done so that things are produced better. I see there's an issue here. Explain to me how that's going on. Why is that being done this way? What would happen if we were to do this this other way to try and improve it? Mm-hmm. That kind of deal. He's not a micromanager level of thing. We've talked about managers like this before, ones who just sat in the background and just listened to what's going on. What if he jumps? <laughs> right. Observes what's going on and just provides that little key insight. Right. And and that's really not Yamauchi. He is somebody that a staff meeting or a meeting with Yamauchi basically devolves into a lecture. There's really no give and take. He has very strong suits as well. I mean, he's totally devoted to Nintendo. All of his energy and effort is to Nintendo. And he has an uncanny ability, as we've talked about before, to discern what is going to sell, what is going to be a hit. But he kind of vacillates between lecturing and obsessing over small details. He doesn't really have the even keel necessary to manage a project through. And he knows that. I mean, he wants people around him that can bolster areas where he's a little weaker. That's what Imanishi's job is. When Yamauchi declares, Imanishi carries out. In a military sort of form is Yamauchi's the captain. Imanishi is the XO. He is the one who takes the captain's visions and ideas and walks with the troops, sees the implementation, sees what problems are being had. Whatever he can't solve on his own, he brings to his captain and goes, hey, captain, we have a problem with this. Provide us direction. Exactly. That's kind of their working relationship for the rest of the time. It's not that Imanishi is always running everything all the time. Like I said, he'll be put on this legal problem or this finance problem, this administration problem. But he's always kind of there to be the field general or the executive officer, as you say, to uh, keep things moving. The other important hire, whom we've devoted a whole episode to, so we don't have to go into huge detail on here, is, of course, Gunpei Yokoi. We talked about this before. I won't go into the background heavily, but Yokoi was local, was native to Kyoto. His father was in pharmaceuticals in Kyoto. He went to school locally, and then he couldn't find a job anywhere. He looked, but he couldn't find a job as an engineer. In that sense, he came to Nintendo almost by accident. If he hadn't been a local boy who couldn't find work, he probably never would have ended up at Nintendo. He was an engineer, but they didn't really need an engineer quite yet at this point. Yamauchi recognized talent when he saw it. And as I said, he was looking to hire bright young university graduates into the company. Even though he didn't really need an engineer at this point, 
he did hire Yokoi to do the maintenance on the card machines because they did need people to keep that stuff up. This is a heavily mechanized company at this point in the card business. Yokoi is brought on in this role, but it's a role that does not take a lot of his time or effort. He's a tinkerer at heart. He loves just making things for his own amusement, which is why he starts taking stuff that's just lying around, old parts from the machines and the tools that he has lying around, etc., and starts making his own little things. This will, of course, come back to play a huge role in Nintendo's Rise in Toys. Though we're going to leave Yokoi to the side for just a moment as we talk about the beginning of this process with the toy business. Nintendo first starts dipping into games somewhere around 1963, 1964, 1965. It's kind of vague exactly when it starts, but it's kind of around 1965 or maybe a couple of years before that. They start with very simple toys, as befits a company that really has never done this before. They do some traditional Japanese board games, like Shogi, which is often called Japanese chess. They do a little baseball board game. They do some licensed board games around Walt Disney, which they still have a license for. They also get an Ultraman license, which is a very popular children's show in Japan in this period. They do some other like little simple sports games. They do a simple table soccer game, a simple bowling game. They do a series of coaster racing games. And these are basically kind of like marble racing games, except they don't use marbles. They use these little things that they call beans, which are these little plastic capsules that look like a pill you might take. But then they have this lead ball, this metal ball in them that gives them weight and allows them to kind of flip over themselves and speed downhill and whatnot. They have these little tracks for them to race on, a little like a marble racing track, except, as I said, it's not marbles. So they make these kind of little games as well. The other thing that Yamauchi does in this early period is he already knows the value of licenses. He has the Disney license. He has the Popeye license. As time goes on in the 60s, he starts licensing even more and more cartoon characters, like Hanna-Barbera characters, for instance. So he knows the value of licensing. He wants to not just bring his own little simple toys into it, but he wants to license toys from prominent American companies as well. So he takes a swing through the United States and is successful in concluding a licensing deal with Milton Bradley which, of course, is one of the big names in board games. They created arguably the first real board game in the American board game industry back in the 19th century, the Game of Life, which is not the Game of Life that we know today, though that Game of Life was named after the original Game of Life, but a similar idea. And, of course, they had many since then, like Candyland and Chutes and Ladders and the more modern game of life, etc. Big board game company. So he's able to conclude a license with Milton Bradley to release some of their products in Japan, and he creates a new imprint for all of this, which is Nippon Game Company, which is represented by an NG logo. There's no real information on the origin of this name, 
Nippon Game Company. I mean, Nippon is Japan, so it's essentially saying, you know, Japan Game Company. The speculation is that he wanted to present something that sounded big and ambitious to American partners when he was making his swing through to license. You know, they're the Japan Game Company. That sounds a lot bigger than Nintendo, which is just this little card company, (laughs) is what it is. After a couple of years, he changes that, and most likely because the Nintendo brand is actually very well recognized in Japan because it does have the cards, both Hanafuda traditional cards and the playing cards, the Disney playing cards, etc. So after a couple of years, he drops the Nippon Company Limited and the NG, he keeps the logo on the product, but the NG stands for Nintendo Game instead of Nippon Game Company. So he does a few Milton Bradley products. He does one called Time Bomb which is basically a hot potato game with this little plastic bomb that had a timer in it and you'd wind it up. You wouldn't know when the timer would stop, and so then you pass it around and then whoever has it when the timer stops blows up. It's a hot potato game, just gussied up a little bit. They did import Twister into Japan, though it wasn't nearly the same sensation in Japan as it was in the United States because Twister became absolutely huge in the United States because it had kind of these sexual undertones to it. You've got all the people on the mat on top of each other and contorting into these strange positions. Milton Bradley really played that up. It really became popular after Eva Gabor appeared on Johnny Carson and played Twister on this night show with Johnny Carson. And they were definitely playing up the <laughs> the kind of naughty element of it. But in Japan, that kind of thing, you know, the close contact, the touching, it's a much more reserved society. So that kind of thing doesn't necessarily play as well in that kind of environment. But they did bring Twister over. They brought Time Bomb over. They brought a few other Milton Bradley products over. And they did some of these other simple games of theirs. And it was fine, I guess. But it wasn't any kind of a breakthrough. The real breakthrough came, as we talked about in our Yokoi episode, when Gunpei Yokoi created, just in his spare time, in his office, whiling away the time after his card maintenance work was done, created the Ultra Hand, an extending hand toy. You know, it had a kind of accordion-style thing, and you push or pull the levers, whichever way it is, the handles on the end of it to extend the hand, and then there was a string that you could pull that allowed the hand to close, so you could extend and grab objects. It was a novelty kind of thing. There are a couple of different stories as to how this came to Yamauchi's attention. In this case, I don't honestly know which one may actually be the accurate one. The one that is told more often, and is even told in Gorge, who is, as we've said before, is kind of the resident expert on Nintendo, and, and it's the one that's definitely gained the most popularity, but it also has a little bit of the feel of being too good to be true as well. And then you have the story that's in Game Over, and in Game Over, David Chef talked to Yamauchi and Yokoi and Imanishi and all of these people, so, I mean, he had access. He does get some of the details on the Japan side of the company wrong. Maybe he gets this wrong, too, but it's a story that seems to make a little more sense. Either way, we'll tell them both, and the people can judge. The way it's told in Chef is that Yamauchi was looking to do something in toys, something a little more interesting in toys. And Imanishi was really pushing him to do more with games and toys. Imanishi was kind of really the driver, according to several sources. 
in getting the company beyond just these board games and these card games and getting them into things a little more interesting. The way the story is told in Chef, Yokoi is summoned into Yamauchi's office. Imanishi's there as well, and they've brought him in because they want to form a game division. They know that Yokoi is an engineer and he likes tinkering with things. He needs to make a toy for them that'll be a hit for the Christmas season. You know, as as the book says, Yokoi basically asks, what should I make? And Yamauchi just says something great. That's what Yamauchi does. He tells you what to do, and, and then you do it, and then he decides whether it's going to pass muster and whether it's going to be a hit or not. I mean, that's the basic relationship. He had been working on this ultra hand just in his spare time, so he brought this thing that he'd been working on to Yamauchi, and Yamauchi said, great, we'll do that. It's still true either way that Yokoi was working on this ultra hand at work in his spare time. And the other way the story is told is that Yamauchi comes into Yokoi's office and catches him in the act of working on this side project, this ultra hand, which technically he's not supposed to be doing because <laughs> he's at work. You know, Yamauchi's like, what is that thing? And Yokoi kind of shows him and Yamauchi doesn't give much response or anything. And then a day or two later, Yokoi is called into the boss's office and he's afraid that you know, he's going to be in trouble because of what he was doing. And instead, Yamauchi tells him, that thing you showed me, make it. We're going to sell it. The stories are similar, but there's some divergence on the details. Personally, I think the first one has more credence because we've already just established that Yumauchi does not go into the trenches very much. Right. He doesn't go into people's offices unless he really, really has a reason. And usually it's there to give you a lecture, not, I'm going to suddenly discover this toy and go, hmm, yeah, we're going to make that. Exactly. That does seem more plausible. I mean, it's not like Yamauchi never ventured outside his office, but it does seem kind of odd that he was paying a visit to the maintenance man. I agree with that. Either way, they make the Ultra Hand. They do that in 1966, and it's just a massive hit. A massive, massive hit. It sells overall 1.2 million copies. It's the toy that puts Nintendo on the map as a toy company. I mean, there's still nothing compared to the big toy giants in Japan like Bandai or Tomy or companies like that, but it's the toy that gives them an identity that is interesting and kind of sets them on their path. And it's the toy that sets them on the path to having an actual game division. That also separates them from being just the card company. Right, a card and board game company. Exactly. It's kind of the impetus for creating an actual game division. Imanishi, again, is the driving force in this. He basically suggests to Yamauchi that they need to reorganize the company into three sections. Section one will be devoted to playing cards, Western-style playing cards. Section two will be devoted to the traditional Japanese playing cards, like Hanafuda. And then section three will be the game division. Yamauchi agrees to this and basically tells Imanishi to go off and do that, and then Imanishi makes Yokoi the head of the game section. In 1967, they start a massive hiring spree to bring in more employees to staff this out, including about 20 engineers and designers that will actually be put towards designing original product, and for the first time, they actually have an R&D division a research and development apparatus within the company of Nintendo under this games heading. Revenues start going up. They reach a turnover of 2 billion yen in 1967 because of the toys starting to gain steam. Then in 1968, Yokoi has another brilliant 
little invention that he comes out with called the Ultra Machine. What the Ultra Machine is, is it's a pitching machine for baseball, except it doesn't use baseballs. It uses ping pong balls. So it's a safe and fun pitching machine for younger children. You don't necessarily want to face real pitching uh, machines or real pitchers in a batting cage. It allows younger children to kind of emulate their baseball heroes or emulate their older siblings or other people that are playing baseball and allows them to, quote unquote, practice their baseball skills as well. This is a period of time when baseball is extremely popular in Japan. Baseball in Japan has always, from its beginning, been tied with the idea of baseball not just as a sport in the way the Westerners think of sports, but baseball as a discipline of the body and mind, very similar to how something like Zen, another Japanese tradition, is about the discipline of the body and mind. It's about hard work and great effort for mental and physical purification. So the way baseball is practiced in Japan is very different than in the West. They will have batting practices that go on for hours and hours. They will have workouts that go on forever because the hard work and the drilling and the practicing is as much a part of baseball as the actual games. A machine that allows young children to feel like they are training and practicing to become baseball players is just a phenomenally good idea and a phenomenal success. I'm looking at a commercial of this that aired in Japan. Mm -hmm. It shows a rather simple device, blue, with a piece of white plastic that slowly rotates along until it hits this resistance point where the ping pong ball is and flings it really quickly straight ahead. It has a track that just feeds some number of these ping pong balls directly into it. And it shows a young kid, probably about the age of five to seven, with a little baseball bat in the home, swinging and hitting the ball. And the father's there aiming the pitching machine at his son. It shows the ping pong ball going into a fishbowl. It is interesting how it shows all the sort of different dynamics. It's fun. It's simple. The kid gets to play baseball and be his hero. It's safe inside the home because it's a ping pong ball. It just went in there, dropped on the goldfish, and the goldfish is still alive and didn't make a mess. <laughs> exactly. They sell about 700,000 of these a year for three years straight. It, it becomes a more than two million seller. Which is, again, just an absolutely phenomenal success, and following on the heels of the Ultra Hand, that was also a phenomenal success. These two products coming back-to-back -back with each other truly transform Nintendo almost overnight. Literally almost overnight. In 1967, when they're really just starting to get these original toys going, 70% of Nintendo's revenues still come from the card business. In 1969, only 30% of Nintendo's revenue comes from the card business. This isn't because their revenue suddenly shrunk either. Between 1967 and 1969, their revenue increased from 1.7 billion yen to 3.42 billion yen. They have a very large increase in revenue coming in. Conversely, they have a lot of this money coming from the new toys and games division 
run by Gunpei Yokoi. Exactly. It becomes so important that they get their own big factory, the factory in Uji that we talked about last episode that was built in order to do the food products. Now that the food product thing is kind of wound down, that becomes the new facility for the Nintendo game division and the new factory for the Nintendo games, so they can just keep spitting this stuff out. In addition to these two big hits, the Ultra Hand and the Ultra Machine, they also get into plastic blocks in this time period, the so-called NB blocks, Nintendo blocks, which are Lego clones. This is the period when Lego is starting to get an international reputation and the idea of plastic building blocks is becoming a big deal. Lego has its system patented. The reason why in all of these decades there has never been compatibility between Lego sets and any other plastic blocks you might see is that Lego was very savvy and made sure to protect their specific system of locking blocks together, which meant that they could sue anybody that did it the same way. Lego are kind of the gold standard, but as is often the case with Yamauchi, Yamauchi and his people see a product that is very popular, but is also comparably expensive, and see an opportunity to carve a niche in the market by providing something that undercuts in price without a significant degradation in quality. NB blocks were not as high quality as Lego blocks. They did not fit together as well. They didn't connect together as well. They used rather cheap molds to make them, so they weren't as good. But they were a lot cheaper than Legos. And so as an alternative for families that couldn't afford these more expensive imports of Lego sets, it provided them a way to be in on the craze, too. So the NB blocks were something that was also very successful for them. It's kind of crazy to think, as an aside here, if you take Lego blocks from the very beginning, 100 years ago, and take Lego blocks from any set today, they will interconnect. They will work. It will be seamless. It is amazing the level of quality that the Lego blocks are made with. You don't have some sort of weird variation. Exactly. Certainly, Nintendo blocks didn't hold up in the same way, but this was another very successful product. They released several sets during the late 60s and early 70s, and it was another successful product that helped them get away from being the card company and instead being the toy company toy and board games. They were still doing a few board games and that kind of things as well. They did a cotton candy machine that was somewhat popular, though also had some problems. And they even expanded into some more kind of tangential areas. They even did a baby stroller that was temporarily very popular. The Mama Barica baby stroller sold a few tens of thousands of units until it was discovered that it had a defect in the frame was actually not strong enough and could bend and even some cases collapse just from the normal weight of a baby. They did have some consumer complaints about that. Now, nobody was seriously hurt. There were no, as far as we know, there were no babies killed or maimed or life-threatening injuries or anything like that. We're mostly just talking about pinched skin and that kind of thing. It was enough that there was a bit of a national outcry against them. The remaining strollers had to be recalled. And that was the end of Nintendo's dalliance and that. But they got into strollers. Outside of the toy division, they even got into office supply equipment for a while as well. The link kind of there is that cards and whatnot, they're printed. It's kind of similar to the stationary business. And it's not too far from the stationary business to the office supply business. 
It's a bit of a stretch, but they did office supplies, too. They even did a photocopier at one point. Yeah, there's a Nintendo photocopier. They were going in all sorts of directions in this period trying to find their way into future profits, whether it be instant food or office equipment or baby strollers or toys and games. And it just so happens that of all of these areas, toys and games were the ones that were particularly successful. And so toys and games are the ones that stuck more long term. But that's something that they had to do. They had to throw a bunch of ideas at the wall to try and figure out what would stick, what would work for them to move forward. As you said, cards wasn't sustaining the business anymore. Yes, it was still a valuable part. Yes, it still had value, but it wasn't enough to sustain the company as a whole. Exactly. Now, not everything that Yokoi touched turned to gold. He did have his less successful products as well. Probably the most infamous of those was a thing called the Ultra Scope. I'm sensing a trend here with this Ultra name. Yes, exactly. The Ultra Hand was very popular, and so that became a brand, if you will, for the company. I'm sure it was no accident also that they chose that at a time when Ultraman was very popular with children. And in fact, as I said, Nintendo even had licensed Ultraman games as well. It wouldn't surprise me if that's a part of it. Of course, we may remember that there was a period of time when Nintendo's 64-bit system was going to be called the Ultra 64. No doubt that was Nintendo calling back to its earlier heritage when they had the Ultra Hand and the Ultra Machine and all of that great stuff. The Ultra Scope was released in 1971. It was a periscope product, just like it sounds. It had two mirrors at 45-degree angles and attached on either end of this long housing, and you peer in on one end, and with the mirrors, you can see stuff going on above (laughs) because of of the way the mirrors are. I'm looking at a demonstration video of this thing. Not only does it do the standard periscope thing, but it actually has a battery-powered motor to raise and lower the upper part of it. It does. So that it can raise up pretty far, surprisingly further than any periscope toy I have ever seen before. Absolutely. And it did okay, but it was nowhere near the success of the other products. However, by this time, as that little battery-powered element of even this device indicates, the company was moving very strongly in a new direction, which was electronic toys. They did so very early for Japan. I mean, electronics are still fairly new at the end of the 60s anywhere, but Japanese toy companies were not quick to embrace electronics. They were very hesitant, for the most part, about getting into this area. But Yokoi, he was an engineer, so he had studied some of this stuff, and he was interested in some of this stuff, and Yokoi's a tinkerer. Yokoi was playing around with this stuff in his spare time, just like when he was a maintenance man, he was playing around in his spare time with the Ultra Hand. He came up with a product called the Love Tester. The Nintendo Love Tester is exactly what you would think it is. It's a miniaturized version of the Love Testers that you would see in bars and places like that. It's meant to gauge the attraction between people. Obviously, it doesn't really gauge the attraction between people, but there is science behind Love Testers. Basically, they are conductors. 
very mild current of electricity is pulsated through them. There are metal contacts that you, the person, each person is supposed to hold on to. This is true whether it's the Nintendo Love Test or the ones you find in bars and other places. So you're each supposed to grasp one of those metal contacts, and then you're supposed to hold each other's hands. And of course, as we know, humans are great conductors of electricity as well. You kind of complete the circuit that way, and there's a measurable current that flows through. Generally speaking, if you're attracted to somebody, some of the physical manifestations of that can be your heart beating faster, sweating, and you know just kind of feeling out of sorts because of the hormones that are raging through you, plus the nervousness of having close physical contact with someone you like as well. Sweat increases electrical conductivity on human skin. So the idea is that if you're attracted to somebody, you'll be sweatier because of what you're feeling. And because you're sweatier, you will conduct the electricity better and you'll get a higher electricity reading. So that's the logic behind love testers. Obviously, they don't really measure attraction, but they do measure something that having an attraction to somebody else can have an impact on, if that makes sense. It does. The human body sweats. And whenever you do sweat, you do have a lot of salt that is in your sweat. Mm -hmm. Salt is a wonderful conductor of electricity. You need some sort of electrical conveyance inside of water. Don't believe me? I will put in the show notes an example showing how you can have electricity running in a circuit with distilled water and salt water and a few other electrolyte mediums. Kind of fascinating how the whole thing works. What you're dealing with here is you're just having sort of a fun thing. You have close physical contact. Being close to someone, you have skin-on-skin contact. Both bodies are going to start heating up. They're going to start sweating, especially your hands. Tons of sweat glands in your hands. I'm just holding my hands together right now, and I can already feel my hands starting to get a little moist, a little damp, because I have that skin-on-skin contact. If you take this metal bit on one side, another metal bit that the other person's holding and you're clasping hands, there is a bit of skin conductivity and conveyance that's going on. All of us have, or nearly all of us have, cell phones with touchscreens. How those cell phones with touchscreens work is on the exact same principle. They use a certain kind of conduction that goes through your hand in order to go, oh, that's where the finger is. They did some sort of trick dealing with that. That's why you need to have certain kinds of gloves in order to use a touchscreen if you're wearing a glove, because you can't create that connection. Same thing with why you can't just use any kind of screen protector. You have to use a screen protector that's specifically designed for touchscreens. This used to be more of a problem back in the day, Pretty much all new ones these days have that. This is just a weird, interesting thing for Nintendo to make. I'm seeing the uh, commercial here of them advertising this sucker. It's funny. (laughs) I will, of course, be throwing this in the show notes. You have this love tester, these smiling people, and you got two people holding each device and looking at each other, and they have this sort of like romance thing, and sort of like by switching it around, who gets to have what? It goes to Max, and then these two go in for a kiss, but before the kiss (laughs) comes, it cuts away to the next commercial. But it's just funny Mm -hmm. that this kind of thing would be designed for the home. I don't think it's something that might be 
more applicable to Japan than it would be in the United States. No, that's that's exactly right. I don't see you buying this for teenagers back in the 70s in the United States, but I can see this happening in Japan. Well, sure. And it goes back again to the more strict etiquette in Japan at this time. The same thing that caused Twister, when Nintendo imported it to not be a success, causes the Love Tester to be a success. Now, in the United States, Love Testers are a thing that go way back, but they are usually, like I said, in places like bars. And the reason is, is that they serve as an icebreaker. They give two people an excuse to touch each other or to hold hands and to see if they have any chemistry. I mean, the love tester itself isn't measuring chemistry. I mean, that doesn't matter. But how you feel when you touch somebody, that is a measure of chemistry. The love tester is just an excuse to get somebody to have physical contact with you. In the U.S., this is something that you would find in public places because that's where you need the icebreaker. In the United States, if you're in somebody's home, in general, you're already beyond the icebreaker phase. I don't even just mean that in a dirty sense because, I mean, these were marketed at adults. They weren't just marketed at kids. In the sense that they're marketed at kids, it's not even about that they're going home to do the nasty. It's just that if you're already in someone else's home and are comfortable enough being in each other's homes, you're probably past the point in American culture where you need some kind of icebreaker. In Japan, displays of public affection are really, really taboo. You can't go to the bar to do the whole love tester thing. I'm sure there are love testers in Japan someplace, but I mean, in general, you can't do that. You can't have a public icebreaker. The icebreakers that you're going to have are going to be in private, because even in private, just the idea of physical contact and whatnot is very taboo. It's very clever what Nintendo did here, because they packaged this as a toy, and that made it harmless and okay. It's just kind of cute. It's a way around those social taboos, and so that's why it was popular even as something in the home. It was a huge success. It's the product that really got Nintendo focused on electronics, or started the process of getting them focused on electronics. The Ultrascope is an example of kind of how they're moving, because the Ultrascope, it still has some of that mechanical element to it that the Ultra Hand had, or that the Ultra Machine had. But it also has that tiny little electronic element to it as well, which is that it had the raising and lowering thing. They're moving in that direction, though that only gets them part of the way there. The other incredibly important development that happens during this time period is the introduction to the company of photovoltaic cells. This, above anything else, is what sets the course of Nintendo's destiny quite literally up to the present day. That is not any kind of exaggeration. This will kind of be the last major topic that we touch on in this episode. The person responsible for bringing this to Nintendo was actually another one of these hot young executives that Yamauchi has been hiring to bolster his management staff named Takuzo Komai. He's kind of an unsung individual in the West. His name is not very well known in the West, but he had a huge influence on Nintendo's movement into more advanced electronic technology. Not only was he responsible for the photovoltaic cell stuff that we're about to talk about here, but he oversaw a lot of the early arcade games. He negotiated the deals with some of the early companies that Nintendo worked with to do their arcade games. 
after all of this, he actually moved on to Sega, and he was one of the main people involved in getting Sega's home console stuff, early, early home console stuff, like the SG-1000, up and running. It's a name that's barely known in the United States, but I mean, he had a humongous influence on both Nintendo and Sega, though he was at Nintendo first. He was interested in science. He was very interested in science. He was interested in astronomy. He was interested in the science that went into things, into electronics and space travel and all of these other things that also surrounded astronomy. More than just about anyone else at Nintendo, he was really up on the latest and greatest technologies that were starting to appear in this time period. So in about 1969, the same time that uh, Nintendo's putting out the Love Tester and is starting to move into this whole electronic toys thing a little more, he learns about photovoltaic cells and batteries. I'm sure you know a little bit about photovoltaic cells, right, Jeffrey? I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. I know enough to be dangerous. Well, let's get dangerous. <laughs> I will put something in the show notes that goes into more detail on this. But in general, you have two different types of silicon wafers next to each other. One has holes that electrons can go to. This creates a differential when light hits the cell so that it creates electrons moving around and they want to go from one side to the other. Then if you put a load on this differential, then you create a circuit. These cells, when they're put together, are pretty low voltage, usually like half a volt or something like that. By combining multiple versions of them in series, you can get enough voltage to run most electronics, especially low voltage or low amperage electronics. So this is used in making solar cells. So think calculators, solar calculators, which were a big thing in the 70s. You had a calculator with four or five little solar cells that were taking in light, ambient light, turning it into electricity. And most calculators didn't really need that much electricity. We've talked about calculators before. Like Sinclair was always great about going, I want the smallest thing ever using the smallest amount of power, and I'm going to do it with this little watch battery. Mm -hmm. If we can do it with a watch battery, we can certainly do it with a few volts from a voltaic cell. So Nintendo's probably looking at this and going, okay, I can take light, and it's going to make a circuit and generate energy. Well, that probably means that I can shoot any light at that, and I don't have to do something with that energy. I can make something that just says, hey, I got a ping. Yay, ping! <laughs> because I have a ping, that means that I could have had shot something at it or shown light at it. I can make Nintendo the day-night sensor or Nintendo playing with clocks or Nintendo the zapper. <laughs> exactly. As you mentioned, these were very important in calculators in this time period. The solar calculator was becoming a big thing. We've talked before how the end of the 60s going into the beginning of the 70s was this period of a huge boom in small handheld electronic calculators. I mean, it was a gigantic business. The Japanese were at the forefront of this business. Companies like Casio and Sharp were 
making a lot of these calculators using these photovoltaic cells. And this mass production of the technology, as is always the case with mass production of technology, led to refinement and cost reduction and started to make them really, really cheap. Komai, because he was interested in this science just as an enthusiast, saw that this was happening, saw the advances that were being made with photovoltaic cells, and more importantly, from a toy company's perspective, cheap photovoltaic cells, and thought to himself, I wonder if these can be used in toys. He made contact with Sharp, one of Japan's premier electronics companies. He asked them to have some engineers, some product demonstration engineers, come over and demonstrate this technology to the Nintendo game staff, to Yokoi and his team, to see if this could be something that they could use. So Sharp, as luck would have it, sends over a young engineer by the name of Masayuki Uemura. Uemura is, of course, one of the legends of Nintendo. He sadly, at the time of this recording, just passed away not very long ago. Uemura is the person that led both the development of the family computer and the super family computer, the NES and the SNES, the father of these two products, first made contact with Nintendo because Komai here read about these photovoltaic cells. So when I say that this whole photovoltaic cell thing sets Nintendo's destiny well beyond just the toys that they made in the 70s, I mean it because it's the product that brought in the man who created the two successful consoles that created, for all intents and purposes, the Nintendo that we think of today, the console manufacturing company. Uemura was born in 1943 in Nara, but his family moved to Kyoto during World War II, as many families did, because we talked about this before in our early Nintendo episodes, that Kyoto was the city that we did not bomb, that the Western powers, the Allies, never bombed. People caught on to this. It wasn't hard to notice that Kyoto was not getting bombed while everyone else was getting bombed, so a lot of people who could moved to Kyoto. Even though he wasn't born there, like Yokoi, he was actually a Kyoto boy. His father was a kimono salesman. The kimono business was not doing well. He eventually transitioned from that to opening a record store in Osaka. Because the kimono business was not doing well, Uemura did not have a privileged childhood. His family's finances were pretty tight when he was a kid. As a result, he had to invent a lot of his own fun. I don't just mean this in the sense of playing pretend and using his imagination, though he certainly did that as well. He had to learn, essentially, to make his own toys, so he got interested in electronics at a very early age. He would do things like make his own radio-controlled airplanes from parts that he scavenged from junk heaps. He attended an industrial college, not a particularly prestigious one, and trained as an electronics technician. So he learned how to do electronics. But here again, we have that same Nintendo role model that has been so important to the way that Nintendo developed. He's very much in the same mode as Yokoi. He's a tinkerer. He's someone that likes poking at technology just to see what fun things he can do with it. Same driving force behind Yokoi. In a way, it's the same driving force behind Miyamoto. Now, Miyamoto is not a technical person. He wasn't tinkering with electronics like Yokoi and Uemura were. But it's that same idea of somebody who's creative and inventive and just likes fooling around with stuff. 
That's the prototypical Nintendo kind of employee. And as we talked about in our Yokoi episode, I think Yokoi being that way set a lot of the tone of the company. And that's what naturally drew people like Uemura into the company as well. Uemura gives a demonstration of this technology to Yokoi and his team. Not only are the photocells very interesting to Yokoi, but there's just an immediate rapport between Yokoi and Uemura. They have similar sensibilities. Not only does Yokoi take orders from Sharp for their cells to use in a toy product, which incidentally also forges a relationship with Sharp that is very, very important and long-lasting for Nintendo as well. The Game & Watch is in very much a collaboration with Sharp. Uh, They moved away from Sharp a little bit with the Famicom, but there were even elements of the Famicom that they partnered with Sharp. Sharp is a very important partner in Nintendo's rise in home electronics and here again, which is why it's relevant to look at the early Nintendo history in such depth and do this three-part look at it like we've done, because here is another moment pre-video game that helps define the way Nintendo comes to power in video games. So they partner with Sharp, but then they also hire Uemura, and Uemura actually joins Nintendo to work on the toy product. Did they just go to Sharp and say, hey, I want to hire this kid because he's an expert in it? Or did he go, I really like what Nintendo's doing. I'm going to go over there. What happened in this case is, like I said, Uemura, just like Yokoi, was a Kyoto man. And Sharp was actually going to transfer him to another region region of the country. And Uemura did not want to leave Kyoto. He wanted to spend his life there, and he did spend his life there. So when they were going to transfer him, he left, and he joined Nintendo, where he had had such a great rapport with Yokoi. They worked together to make this next toy, which is the Kosinju SP. It's a series of light gun games, as you kind of hinted at. They came with a toy gun. This toy gun, when you pulled the trigger, emitted a short flash of light. Then that light would be picked up by the photovoltaic cell, if you hit the photovoltaic cell right, then it would cause something to happen with the target. They had different targets. They did a whole line of these things. It wasn't just one target. One of them was called the jumping bottle. This was a beer bottle that would come apart when you hit the photovoltaic cell. Bottles are kind of a stereotypical thing that people, if they're shooting in the middle of nowhere in their backyard, will shoot at bottles for target shooting. So this is allowing a child to emulate that behavior and do the same thing, but with a harmless toy and and no harm done to anything. Another one was Electro Safari. One that I'm looking at that is very relevant to Nintendo is Duck Hunt. Yes, that was a few years uh, later that they put that one out after the period recovering. But yes, they did a Duck Hunt one, which was probably somewhat ripped off from a Sega Duck Hunt coin-operated game. The Duck Hunt back and forth is more convoluted than one would think. The Duck Hunt video game is almost certainly based in part, in large part, on the Atari arcade game Quack, because that game even had a dog that ran out and fetched the ducks. But anyway, yes, they did a Duck Hunt one. They did all of these products using a pistol or in some cases a rifle and then you would shoot the targets and something would happen to the targets when you shot them 
shooting, we talked about this in some of our Japanese coin-op episodes, but shooting was something that was of interest to Japanese people. But guns were so heavily restricted and regulated that it was very hard to get even something like an air rifle, even something that isn't, you know, we're not talking about restricting AR-15s here or something. I mean, we're talking about it was hard to get sporting rifles. It was hard to get air guns. It was hard to get any kind of projectile weapon in Japan. Most people couldn't do it. Gun corners became very popular in Japanese society with coin-operated target shooting games, many of which were light gun games. They weren't using photovoltaic cells. They were generally using light-sensitive vacuum tubes, more primitive and bulkier technology, which is why you couldn't translate them into the home, really, until photovoltaic cells came along. But those became very popular, these gun corners, because the Japanese were interested in shooting but didn't really have an outlet for it. So this is the same kind of thing, because, of course, you know, children can't have guns. Even in America, children theoretically usually aren't supposed to have guns, certainly not in Japan. So this was a way to bring that into the home and allow uh, children to do the shooting thing without harming anything, because it's all just light and cells. As I said, they did a pistol version and they did a rifle version. If you look at the rifle version of the game and you look at that rifle, and then you bring up a picture of a Magnavox Odyssey rifle, the original Magnavox Odyssey, the first home video game system released in 1972. You'll notice that those guns look almost identical, and there's a very good reason for that. Because Nintendo's very first foray into video games was actually as the manufacturer for the guns on the Magnavox Odyssey because they already knew how to work with that kind of technology. They already had the molds. They already had the rifles. So Magnavox actually contracted with Nintendo to do the rifles on the Magnavox Odyssey. Fun little side fact. Yeah, I got a picture here that I'll throw into the show notes of the four major rifles and pistols that were used by Nintendo. You have sort of a scoped rifle. You got a revolver that had a white handle. You have something that's more like a lever-action rifle, and you have another revolver that just has a black handle on it, much more like a Colt. Mm-hmm. So you sort of have a long-range sniper-ish rifle for, like, shooting birds or squirrels at a distance. You have something that's more along the lines of a lever-action Henry. That's uh, common for a lot of shorter-range rifle shooting. And then you have two kinds of pistols that are being used. I can definitely see, particularly with the lever action one, that that is very, very similar to the one that is in the Magnavox Odyssey, which I believe is also a lever action here. Let me look real quick. Well, yeah, because it's, it's basically the, the same gun. <laughs> All right, I was wrong. The, it is more like the first scoped rifle minus the scope, so it doesn't have the lever action to it. Mm-hmm. Komai is in charge of marketing this thing. I mean, Yokoi and his team build it, but Komai, the person who's been championing this all along, is the one that's in charge of bringing this to the public. And he pulls out all the stops. Because this is an expensive project. Photovoltaic cells are coming down in price. But electronic toys, just in general, are going to be a lot more expensive than just cheap plastic toys. I mean, that's just the way of the world. So this thing is about 4,000 yen, which is very expensive for a toy in Japan at that time. Komai is dedicated to making sure this works. So there is a large advertising campaign across all media, including television. They set up demonstration units 
in department stores so that the kids can see this thing in action and be wowed by it. It's very similar, incidentally, to what was needed to sell video games in the early days when video games were a new product and they were very expensive. Demonstrating the product was essential to getting people interested, and so you see Nintendo doing this here even before video. And it becomes a massive hit. They sell over a million units. A lot of them, it turns out, end up being defective because Nintendo has never done large-scale production of electronics like this before. It's a bit hit or miss on the quality, but it's a humongous success. It propels Nintendo forward. The profits from it allow Nintendo to move up in the world. So they had listed on the stock exchange in 1962, as we said, but there are various stock exchanges in Japan, as there are in the United States, and they have varying levels of prestige. The better the stock exchange you are on, the more investment you're going to get, the more money you're going to realize from the markets. They initially listed on the second section of the Osaka Stock Exchange. In 1970, they are able to list on the first section of the Osaka Stock Exchange, and they're also able to register on the second section of the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Tokyo more prestigious than Osaka. And yes, you can be on both at the same time. I don't know exactly how Japanese stock markets work, but you can. We'll just leave it at that. They're on the more prestigious part of the Osaka Stock Exchange, and they're now on the back end of the much more prestigious Tokyo Stock Exchange. So they are coming up in the world on the back of this successful product, on the back of this move to electronics. And it's electronics that still dominate Nintendo's future today. It started a little bit with the Love Tester, but it really started with the Beam Gun games. This is what makes Nintendo an electronic toy company and starts them right on the path all the way to the Switch that we have at the time of this recording. They do also learn something, though, about the nature of the industry with this, because once that becomes such a success, Yokoi tries to get more elaborate with it. They create a new series called the uh, Kosinju Custom Gun, which features even more elaborate technology and targets and all of that. Unfortunately, these don't do quite as well because the price is just way too much. So this kind of helps hammer home the kind of philosophy, which remains the philosophy throughout the family computer era and beyond, and even to the Switch today, that just having the latest and greatest and most wonderful technology is not necessarily enough if you've priced yourself out of the market. I'm not saying that this is the very genesis of Yokoi's uh, lateral thinking with withered technology philosophy, because I don't think you can point to any one thing and say, this is how it started. That's far too facile and simplistic. But I do think it was one of the object lessons, probably, on Nintendo's path towards making sure that they are being cost-effective and not just using the best technology they can possibly find just to get the biggest, most incredible thing. If the price is not there, too, then it's just not going to work as a product. We've seen this before with a lot of different kinds of consoles that, yeah, you have the best technology, but if you don't have a price point that people want to deal with, people aren't going to go with you. We're looking at you... Sega Saturn, and the PlayStation. Mm -hmm, absolutely. This gets them into electronics. There's also a direct line from these SP games, from these light gun games, to getting into coin-op. 
during the period of time when the SP gun stuff is just starting to take off, Yamauchi reads about pistol shooting competitions, which are something becoming popular in Japan. So his natural thought is, well, if pistol competitions are something that's becoming popular, is this something we can emulate with our light guns? Since, again, shooting is not something that everyone is, is able to do in Japan. Yokoi thinks about this, because Yamauchi summons him and asks him that. Yokoi thinks about this. He knows that skeet shooting, clay pigeon shooting, is also becoming popular in Japan at this time. So he comes up with the idea of creating a skeet shooting system by basically taking the technology in the pistols, the photovoltaic cells and the light guns and all of this, and expanding it into a bigger arena, a public arena, a commercial arena, where you could simulate skeet shooting using these light guns. He works on what becomes called the laser clay shooting system in tandem with Uemura and another young engineer that has just been hired into the company by the name of Ginyo Takeda. Takeda is kind of the important third leg of this tripod of Nintendo engineering legends. Yokoi created the Game & Watch, led the team that created the Game Boy. He wasn't really the one that had most of the big ideas that went into the creation of the Game Boy, but he is the one that led the team that created the Game Boy. Of course, got the whole Nintendo games division started back in the 60s. Uemura, creator of the family computer and the super family computer. Takeda became the principal hardware engineer in the entire company. He was the one in charge of all the console R&D development on everything from the Nintendo 64 forward. He's just retired now, but he had a hand in everything, including in, you know, up to the Switch until he finally retired from the company just a couple of years ago. Takeda was again one of these tinkers in the same mold. He's not a Kyoto man, but he is an Osaka man, so he's another one of these Southerners, uh, Southern Japan. His father was the president of a fabric design company, so he had a decently well-off childhood. He graduated in 1970, so he really is you know, just out of college when this is going on, from Shizuoka Governmental University on the island of Honshu. He was studying semiconductors and electrical engineering. That was his major. But he was another one of these wild ducks. He was very heavily involved in the student protest movement, which was fairly strong in Japan in this period of time, just like it was in the United States, kind of the counterculture movement. Counterculture in Japan means something different from counterculture in the United States, but there was still this same kind of rebellion against authority and the older generation and whatnot was going on in Japan at this time, too. And so Takeda was part of that. He was another one of these guys that just tinkered for fun. He built both miniature locomotives and airplanes out of electronic components just for the heck of it. Another one of these free spirited guys that, that kind of make up what a Nintendo engineer was what a significant Nintendo engineer was in this time period. Yokoi Uemura and Takeda create this laser clay shooting system, which is basically, like I said, just the beam guns games on a much larger scale, with clay pigeons projected on big screens that are further away from you, and you're using rifles that have the light gun technology and, and all of that kind of stuff. 
it just so happens that this exact same moment, the bowling boom that has been going strong in Japan for just about a decade is starting to fall apart. We've talked about the bowling boom because it was a very important part of what led to the spread of coin-operated amusements in Japan. Because as bowling alleys proliferated all across the country, thousands of them, literally thousands of them, in the 1960s, they would have little gun corners or arcades in them. Bowling alleys were one of the prime vehicles through which coin-operated games spread throughout Japan. Well, now flash forward to the beginning of the 1970s, and as with all fads, the bowling fad, the bowling boom is coming to an end. So you have these bowling alleys that are sitting empty, and you have these bowling alley owners that don't know what to do with them. Bowling alleys, of course, they're huge. They have to be because you have the long lanes for the bowling and you have lots of lanes. So these are big buildings. They're perfect for the laser clay shooting system. So it's an absolute match made in heaven. Once again, Tokuzo Komai is leading this project. Komai is kind of the main point man for all of these kind of projects, from the beam gun games to the laser clay ranges to the coin-operated games. He is the big mover and shaker on the executive side. Again, it it floors me that he's basically unknown in the West because of all the projects he was in charge of, both at Nintendo and Sega. But there you have it. It's an expensive project because these are big installations with lots of technology. Basically an amusement park attraction. The R&D behind it is going to be about 150 million yen. But with shooting being so popular in Japan and so difficult to do with real guns in Japan, and with the bowling alleys desperate for new product to keep their buildings functioning profitable, it really seems like this is going to be brilliant. Absolutely brilliant and really bring Nintendo to the next level. They start prototyping it in 1973. It is an immediate hit. Bowling alleys are champing at the bit to get their hands on this thing. It looks like there's going to be thousands of installations. Then the Middle East gets messy. Which is completely unrelated to Japan. If only. In 1973, after turning towards the Soviet bloc and significantly upgrading their military capability, the countries of Egypt and Syria believe that they will finally finally be able to revenge themselves against Israel after the humiliating defeat in the uh, 1967 Six-Day War, reconquer their lost territory in the Sinai and the Golan Heights, and finally bring hated Israel, just from their perspective, I'm not propagandizing here, finally bring hated Israel to its knees, as they have wanted to do ever since the nation of Israel existed. They launch a surprise attack on Israel on Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Jewish religion. They win a series of quick victories bolstered by their surprise attack, the fact that it's a surprise, and bolstered by their modern air defense uh, network that they've been able to build thanks to their alliance with the Soviets, which allows them to, in large part, neutralize the vaunted Israeli Air Force but then kind of outpace their defensive grid and their technology. And in the end, Israel rallies, as Israel always did in these wars, and pushes them back and wins the war. 
it's the last major war between Israel and its neighbors to date. Uh, though there have obviously been a lot of other tensions and skirmishes and, you know, even some cross-border attacks, but it's the last kind of big war. Western countries, particularly the United States, as they usually do, stand fast with Israel and condemn the Arab aggression, and it was Arab aggression in this case. The Arab countries respond with an oil embargo on the United States and its allies. Americans that were alive at that time will remember the long, long lines at the gas stations because gas was rationed and there wasn't enough for everybody that wanted it. But America, even then, was an oil-producing country. America relied much more on imports then, before things like fracking, for their oil. But they were still an oil-producing nation. So it was bad, and it caused a heck of a lot of problems. But at least they had their own source. Japan is a series of islands. Japan imported 98% of its oil. Japan, as a staunch ally of the United States, was also subject to the oil embargo from the Middle East. The effect on the Japanese economy was absolutely ruinous. All of these orders for laser clay shooting ranges vanished overnight because it was too expensive. Nobody could afford this, and people weren't going to come and pay for it. People were going out less. Just when it looked like they were going to have thousands of lanes at hundreds of bowling alleys with laser clay shooting ranges. In the end, only 33 installations are ever done. And by 1975, they're out of the business. Now, to Yamauchi's credit, he saw that this was going to happen. I mean, when he realized this was going to happen, he just cut loose. He didn't try to make it work. As soon as he saw what effect the oil shock was going to have on Japan, he was like, we're done. And that hurt. That hurt a lot. But it probably would have hurt even more if he had made the decision of, oh, well, things look kind of bad, but they can't really stay bad forever, right? And so this is a great product idea, so we'll still sell what we can and we'll keep it going, and it's bound to turn around, right? If he had taken that approach, it probably would have been an even bigger disaster. Instead, he just ended it. Don't get me wrong. It was a huge disaster. Nintendo suffered losses again. Nintendo accrued huge debts because they had put so much money into the development of this system that was now not going to pay off. They accrue a debt estimated at about 5 billion yen. This is another moment, just like some of the other crisis points that we've seen in the past, like the beginning of the 60s or World War II that really could have been the end of Nintendo. It was bad. But the engineers realized that they could take these large installations that they had created, this laser clay shooting system, they could take this technology and they could refactor it into something a little smaller and something that could be played in a traditional coin-operated amusement venue a gun corner, or a department store rooftop, or a game center. The game centers were actually doing okay during the oil shock. I mean, nobody was doing brilliantly. But because gun corners and game centers tended to be in the areas where people were going anyway, 
department stores, supermarkets, train stations, etc. And because it was a relatively cheap form of entertainment, 50 yen coins we're talking about in this time period, it's not even up to 100 yen yet. As far as amusements and entertainment products went, it was doing better than most. It's the same kind of thing that allowed pinball to thrive in the United States during the Great Depression. When you have something that's relatively cheap price per play, and it's around in the areas you're going anyway, like you're not having to make an extra trip to go to the places where these things are, then it weathers a recession or a depression much better than other forms of entertainment. To save the company from what really may have been absolute ruin, Yamauchi and Komai and Imanishi and Yokoi take Nintendo into coin-operated amusements, bringing the company just to the edge of what it would become just a few years later, which is a video game company. No longer a card company, no longer a toy company, but a video game company. There you have it. That is Nintendo before Nintendo, if you want to think of it that way. You can see throughout these episodes, sometimes it's a stronger link than others. Obviously, as we get closer to the present, the link becomes ever stronger. But you can see throughout the history here how the seeds were planted to turn Nintendo into what it is today. There are things that go back decades and decades that set the stage for the Nintendo of the Game & Watch, of the family computer, of the Nintendo Entertainment System, of Donkey Kong, of Mario, of Zelda. Hopefully, by listening to these three episodes, you kind of get a sense of some of that history behind how Nintendo still does business today. We ended it here in the mid to late 70s. From here, obviously, we get into the Pong stuff that we covered that Nintendo has done. We get into more of the arcades. We get more into that video stuff. So I invite you to check out those episodes if you feel like, hey, I want to hear more about Nintendo. I will, of course, make those links easy in the show notes for you. Absolutely. You know, we'll probably return to some of that material in more detail from time to time, as we always do. But didn't want to make this a 20-part episode. Three will do us for now. You only get post-three episodes when we do a live broadcast. <laughs> right. As we continue our romp through 2022, what shall be our wonderful episode to listen to you in February. Well, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, Masayuki Uemura, the legendary Nintendo engineer, just passed away very recently. There's also another video game icon that has sadly just passed away at the time of this recording. A person who never played a video game in his life, I'm sure probably never really understood this whole video game thing much, was never employed by the video game industry, but is probably the most famous and influential name in all of video games. Which, of course, I mean John Madden, the legendary Raiders coach, broadcaster, and namesake of the Madden football series. We've talked before about John Madden football, we did an episode on EA Sports, and obviously you cannot tell the story of EA Sports without bringing up John Madden football. The story of the creation of the game, of the first game, the story of 
its transition from an Apple II game that nobody cared about to a Sega Genesis game that truly launched a franchise. The way that it became so huge and so influential that you've literally had a generation of football players that have in part learned the game of football by playing Madden is such a rich and fascinating and interesting story that there is so much more depth that we can go into than what we just did when we were covering EA Sports and is definitely worthy of its own episode and it just seems very timely with uh, the great man himself having just passed. So Madden Football. Not just passed, but also February being a very big football month. I suppose that's true too. They play some little game or something. I don't know. Some sort of bowls about supper or uh, yeah. flower bowls. I think like a you know a small number of fanatics like tune into it every year or something. I don't know. I don't know. Some sort of Super Bowl or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um. <laughs> anyway, we will see you next time on They Create Worlds, the Super Game Edition. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the Companies and People That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 